afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Iowa City Foreign Relations Council program with guest speaker, Dr. Madhav Joshi. Thanks to Dr. Joshi and to everyone who has joined us online today. I'm Bill Reisinger, ICFRC board member and program committee chair, and I'll be hosting today's program. We have special program sponsors today, Karen and Wally Chapel, both longtime leaders, friends, and sponsors of ICFRC. So we thank them both for their great support. We would also like to acknowledge and thank our other annual donors and sponsors for their support. Midwest One Bank, the University of Iowa's Honors Program, Public Policy Center, and International Programs. The Stanley U of I Foundation Support Organization, the Iowa Arts Council through the Iowa Department of Cultural Affairs, Humanities Iowa, and City Channel 4 for its support in live streaming our in-person programs and for providing access to all of ICFRC's programs along with the UI Library Archives. ICFRC has adopted the Native American Land Acknowledgement prepared for the City of Iowa City's Ad Hoc Truth and Reconciliation Commission and Human Rights Commission. We recognize that our home community of Iowa City now occupies the homelands of Native American nations to whom we owe our commitment and dedication. The full text of our acknowledgement is on our website at icfrc.org. As we get started, I would like to cover some Zoom etiquette tips. This is the time to make sure you know where your video and audio mute and unmute buttons are located. Please keep your audio and video turned off during the duration of the presentation so you do not interrupt the speaker during his remarks. Following our speaker's presentation, at about 1245, we will have a 15 minute Q&A. You will be able to submit your questions via the chat function. At that time, we invite you to turn on your video, but please keep your audio muted to avoid any background noise. It is now my pleasure to introduce Dr. Madhav Joshi, who will speak about the intra-Afghan peace process, the Taliban victory and women's rights. Madhav Joshi is research professor and Associate Director of the Peace Accords Matrix, PAM, at the Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies in the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. He oversees the data coding on the implementation of peace agreements worldwide for the PAM project and leads the research initiatives on peace agreement design, implementation, and post-implementation political and economic developments. Dr. Joshi earned his PhD in Comparative Politics and Research Methodology from the University of North Texas in 2010. His research and teaching focus is on civil wars, mediation, post-civil war democratization, democratic survival, peace duration, and peace building. He has published on these topics in top political science and international relations journals. He has also facilitated ongoing peace processes by authoring or co-authoring over 70 policy briefs for government officials in the Philippines, Norway, Nepal, and Colombia, as well as the United Nations Development Program and many civil society organizations. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Joshi. Thank you, Bill, and uh, thank you, uh, Iowa City Foreign Relations Council uh, for this uh, invitation. And that's a lot of, you know, um, collab, Bill, that you read. <laughs> But, uh, but you know, so today you know, um, I would like to talk about the intra-Afghan you know peace process uh, related issues. Um, but just a quick disclaimer um, that I'm not a specialist of Afghan politics, 
And my research as Bill was saying, um, broadly focus on comparative peace processes, how civil war peace agreements are reached and how they are implemented following um, the signing of the agreement. So I happened to research the case of Afghanistan in context of my peace process research work. And I use uh, some comparative insights from other peace processes, from peace processes in other countries to understand you know, what's going on uh, in terms of the Afghan peace process. So I also would like to acknowledge the sufferings of innocent Afghan civilians, uh, the women and girls who are uh, going through the humanitarian disaster and uncertain future. Um, and this is also the reason why it is important to find um, the solution to the endless cycle of violence in, in Afghanistan. And just a quick definition, when I talk about, uh, when I say the peace process, you know, I'm usually referring to the talks between the armed actors who are challenging the legitimacy of the government in one way or another. And there are talks in finding negotiated solutions to end the conflict, civil wars. So in today's presentation, uh, I will focus on three big issues. Uh, first, I'll focus on um, some of the empirical patterns related to interested armed conflict and peace agreement. Second, the relationship between conflict, the types of conflict termination and peace. And third, you know, I think you know, after talking about these two specific issues very quickly, that will put us in a good situation, good, good you know, position to talk about the intra-Afghan peace process. And when I talk about the intra-Afghan peace process, I will focus on the lead up to the Doha agreement, the intra-Afghan negotiation, followed by uh, following the Doha agreement. Uh, the, the inter-Afghan negotiation itself in Doha and the Taliban victory and what it means for um, the women, women's rights in Afghanistan and whether the peace process is you know, the only path forward for peace and stability in, in Afghanistan. So just let's get quickly you know, around this particular graph. You know, it summarizes um, or provides an overview of um, civil war and peace agreement for the last 75 years since 1946 up to 2020. Um, as you can see in this graph, uh, the peace negotiation, especially in context of civil war, was not a common practice during the Cold War period. And it is very important to note that. Um, but with the end of the Cold War, um, or you even can say with the increasing involvement of the United Nations uh, in peacemaking and peace building since early 1990s, you can see a lot of peace agreement being negotiated in intra-state armed conflict, which is denoted by um, the, um, the red um, line in this particular graph. And as a result of a lot of international focus and international involvement, um, uh, there was a lot of peace agreements negotiated and that contributed to the decline of um, interested armed conflict. According to the Uppsala conflict data program, the termination data that they have compiled, um, it suggests that out of 96 conflict terminated between 1946 and 1988, that is during the Cold War period, 79 conflicts were terminated in one-sided victory and 17 conflicts were terminated in negotiated peace agreement. So this trend was reversed in the post-Cold War period. Data suggests that between 1989 and 2014, 44 conflicts were terminated in one-sided victory and 73 conflicts were terminated in either ceasefire or peace agreement. 
In other words, the frequency of conflict termination, um, you know, reversed. Uh, there was 329% increase in negotiated settlement compared to 44% decline in one-sided victory just, you know, between the Cold War and post-Cold War period. The graph also shows that uh, there are more active armed conflicts these days uh, than ever before, actually. And this trend actually started after 2011 or spring in Middle East and North African countries. And you know, after 2011, there is not a lot of you know, peace agreements negotiated. And there can be, you know, my comparative uh, understanding of what's going on in peacemaking and peace building is that there can be three reasons to explain this uh, particular phenomena in the last you know, 10 years and so. The first one is the increase in the number of armed conflicts with religious dimension. Uh, the second one is the lack of international mediators focusing on how to engage religious issues or religious actors in peace negotiation. And third, too much involvement of international actors uh, in socio-political and economic re-engineering of the post-conflict state. Uh, without engaging the key actors, key domestic actors who are influential uh, in domestic politics. And certainly all these three elements are present in case of Afghanistan. So here I present some empirical patterns related to types of conflict termination and post-conflict peace. Uh, conflict can uh, terminate either in government victory, rebel victory, comprehensive peace agreement, partial peace agreement, or just, you know, um, the parties just, you know, can stop uh, fighting altogether. Um, but the, a peace agreement is comprehensive if negotiation process involves all relevant armed actors and all contentious issues are on the negotiation table. And one interesting thing is that the armed groups can, uh, armed conflict can reemerge following any types of termination. Um, but the comprehensive settlements, you know, the, uh, that type of particular settlement seems successfully avoiding the relapse into conflict uh, after um, the comprehensive agreement, if they are successfully implemented. If we look at the sample of only comprehensive peace agreements since 1989, the success rate is over 84% or over 84% of the countries nego that negotiated comprehensive peace agreement, they uh, uh, did not have any kind of armed conflict. And certainly the objectives of intra-Afghan negotiation in Afghanistan um, uh, after the Doha peace agreement uh, was to find comprehensive solution, comprehensive settlement to all types of conflict in, in Afghanistan. But obviously there was, an, as we all know, there was a rebel victory or Taliban victory in Afghanistan in August um, 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 this year. And compared to comprehensive settlement, as you can see in this particular graph, uh, the rebel victories are more likely to lead to more armed conflict. So the current situation in Afghanistan is not so easy for both for the Taliban and also for the international actors. And for almost 50 years in, um, uh, in Afghanistan, um, there is a lot of political instability and armed conflict. Uh, and it comes in all sizes and forms of major regional and international involvement. Uh, a few peace agreements were signed in, Af in Afghanistan, uh, um, and that, but th those peace agreements were not very inclusive. For example, the Peshawar Accord in 1992, uh, it was signed after the Soviet withdrawal, 
dealing with this, the situation in Afghanistan at that time and the formation of Afghan, new Afghan government. But the accord was not signed by all Afghan Mujahideen parties who were involved in the conflict at that time. After the US with, you know, overthrow of Taliban uh, in 2001, uh, there was a Bonn Declaration that, and, and in 2004, there was a Berlin Declaration. Uh, and this declaration included factions in the Northern Alliance, the United States and other third party actors, but the Taliban's were not part of these declarations. They were not consulted. They were not part of the negotiation process. After 2001 terrorist attack in the United States, the Taliban were asking to have a dialogue with the United States. Um, but all those requests, we know that were you know, uh, rejected by the United States. The focus of the United States after a terrorist attack in the United States, you know, uh, was uh, in Afghanistan was to fight terrorism. And after a few years, the focus shifted to uh, counterinsurgency, fighting counterinsurgency. Um, there became the, the major military objective. The counterinsurgency fight in Afghanistan, however, uh, we all know that they lacked, you know, political strategy and that contributed to the regrouping and rearmament of the Taliban. And there is plenty of research on, done um, um, on this particular, particular issue. So because of the protracted counterinsurgency war in Afghanistan, the US military and political leaders, they came to realize that the only way to end war in Afghanistan is through negotiation with the Taliban. And it happened around 2010. So the, uh, that led to the meeting of the US officials uh, and Taliban representatives in Geneva, in Germany in 2010. And following this, over half a dozen talks took place in Doha over the course of several months. Uh, but the Doha negotiation is stalled in January 2012 for disagreement between the US Congress and the Taliban on the release of Guantanamo Bay prisoners. So the Taliban were actually demanding, you know, them to uh, to be free uh, in Afghanistan, but the U.S. proposal was to move them to some other prison in other countries. Uh, the talks officially ended in 2013. After a year and a half, the Afghan government announced that they are willing; they were they would hold talks with Taliban. Uh, and the first rounds of talks started in Pakistan in 2015. And the talks was, you know, in the talk, there was representation of the United States and China and other regional powers. But the momentum is stalled after the death of Taliban leader Mullah Omar. Uh, in, um, and the Taliban second in command at that time was in a prison in, in uh, Pakistan. And the Pakistani government did not release him to continue with the negotiation process. So negotiation basically collapsed uh, after the first round of talk. In January, 2017, the Taliban offered peace talk uh, with the new US um, administration. Uh, the new US administration was in the position of, you know, not to talk with the hardline uh, Afghan, uh, hard Afghan Taliban's. Uh, they were in uh, contemplating the ideas of negotiating with the uh, moderate Taliban factions, but ultimately, you know, the U.S. government appointed a special envoy to negotiate with the Taliban. So, you know, there was no barriers to who can be included from the Taliban side. And between September 2018 and September 2019, the U.S. had at least eight rounds of talks um, uh, with the Taliban, but the talks suspended uh, for a few months after Taliban fighter 
killed um, um, uh, U.S. soldier uh, in October 2019, uh, but talks resumed again in December 2000-2019. So on February 2021, um, on February 21, 2020, the U.S. coalition forces, uh, the Afghan government, and Taliban uh, agreed for a week-long reduction in violence um, as a prelude to the Doha peace agreement, uh, which was signed between the Taliban and the, the United States government on 29 February, 2020. The Doha agreement has three core elements. Um, first, it provided a roadmap for the withdrawal of the US and NATO troops um, uh, from Afghanistan after almost two decades of relentless fighting. Second, it it seeks uh, a guarantee from the Taliban that it would not allow its member, other individuals, or groups to use Afghan soil to threaten the United States and its allies. And third, the, the, you know, it has a provision of the exchange of prisoners between the Afghan government and Taliban to pave the way for inter-Afghan negotiations. And uh, there are also other, other elements, you know, um, um, including the United States supporting the reconstruction of Afghanistan um, after the successful peace process. So here is a quick, you know, I did a little bit of uh, research on to what extent the Doha Agreement was implemented or not implemented um, 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 last um, um, April or March, I, I say. Um, and here is a key findings, you know, in terms of the implementation of um, the Doha Agreement. The part one, you know, which mostly contains uh, commitments on part of the United States is mostly implemented. The only thing that was not implemented in this particular uh, part relates to um, the US administration review of sanctions against the Taliban. So that part, you know, is not uh, implemented. Part two mostly deals with the Taliban commitment and commitments in these parts, you know, has the lowest implementation rate. Uh, but it is also difficult to probe the measures, you know, taken by the Taliban towards implementing those commitments, uh, because there is no way to, to probe that to the extent that uh, I would like to, to probe. And part three, the, uh, the specific commitments includes the US uh, commitment of providing economic reconstruction, uh, and also uh, the, some of the measures you know, taken by the, um, the United Nations Security Council um, resolution um, there. But the, you know, the key thing you know, that we all need to understand is that the Doha peace agreement is not a typical peace agreement. It had a number of complexities from comparative peace process point of view. First, the agreement was signed between a non-state actor, the Taliban, and a third party state, the United States, the Afghan government was not a signatory of the agreement. Second, the signatories of the agreement expected compliance from multiple other actors, including the Afghan state and the United Nations Security Council. But they were not, as I said, they were not part of the, the, the agreement. The another complexity was that the agreement's implementation was the basis for the intra-Afghan negotiations between the Taliban and the Afghan government. And third, there was no deadline for the agreement's implementation, but there was a deadline for the US and NATO troops withdrawal, which created a lot of complexities. In other peace processes, for example, in Angola in 1991, uh, the foreign troops were withdrawn only after the parties reached a comprehensive ceasefire. Uh, 
uh, and we all know that in Bosnia in 1995, the NATO troops stayed there to implement uh, uh, the, the, the 95 peace agreement. Here, the troops withdrawal date is set forth before the Afghan government and the Taliban actually reached a final agreement. <clears throat> I would say that the Doha agreement partially worked. Uh, the Taliban did not attack the United States and NATO troops, um, but the conflict continued between the Taliban and the Afghan state. But because of the continuation of the violence between Afghanistan, um, Af Afghan government and the Taliban, uh, it created a lot of complication in terms of implementing the provisions related to the release of prisoners. So as part of the agreement, um, the Taliban's are required to release 1,000 Afghan prisoners and the Afghan government was required to release 5,000 Taliban prisoners as part of like, you know, building trust uh, and, and starting the intra-Afghan negotiation. I collected data uh, on uh, who is releasing uh, the prisoners on what date. Um, and it took, it took almost five months for both sides, especially the Afghan government to release all the uh, prisoners as required in the Doha agreement. So the early momentum, you know, in a peace building, peace making, you know, we talk about the momentum that has been created after the signing, you know, so the early momentum that was very critical to push the Doha negotiation process, the intra-Afghan negotiation in Doha was actually lost because there was a lot of back and forth on release of the prisoners. And it also created a lot of trust issues on part of the, you know, um, uh, whether the United States can actually have a leverage on, on Taliban or even Afghan government. So we collected data on, um, 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 uh, you know, after the Doha agreement was signed, collected data on who is meeting with whom. Uh, and um, uh, after the Doha agreement was signed, the Afghan side and then Taliban side, they nominated their negotiating team. And the, only the Afghan uh, government had women's representation in their negotiating team. So when in our data, what I find, what, what was found was that uh, in the first phase, and these are you know, just the arbitrary because there was some milestones in the negotiation process that, um, that I used to create all these phases or period. In the first period, uh, between the Doha agreement and the initiation of the formal negotiation in Doha, the parties met for 300, 131 times or 131 meetings took place with 45 distinct actors. And in the second phase uh, between September 12 and December 8, um, when the parties were able to finalize the rules, uh, the, the agreement on rules and procedures on how to continue the Doha negotiation uh, for the second phase. Um, so there were 129 meetings in this particular phase and 45 distinct actors were involved in that negotiation process. In the third phase between December 9 and April 13, uh, so this period ends with the Biden administration's announcement that they would like to review the Doha agreement and in this phase, 257 meetings took place, you know, and 61 distinct actors were involved in the negotiation process. It is in this phase that the US Secretary wrote to the Afghan president to expedite the negotiation process. And in his letter, letter he talks about engaging the regional actors, the Taliban demand for principle for future uh, constitution and inclusive government. 
the Afghan president, you know, at that time, he rejected the proposal and came up with his own peace plan. And uh, his peace plan had three specific steps or, or, or you know, phases. And it talks about the political consensus and ceasefire as the precondition for the first phase, the presidential election and the, uh, the formation of the peace government based on that election that is in the second phase and in the third phase, the constitutional framework uh, to resolve all conflict in Afghanistan. The plan was rejected by Taliban, uh, no surprise about that. Um, but the, the one interesting thing about this particular plan was that uh, he even did not have enough support within all the fraction or faction within the Afghan government um, um, about this particular plan. And in the third, uh, in the final phase is, you know, April 14 to, you can say, you know, the, in, um, uh, but here in, we collected data until May 31st, that was, you know, uh, our um, uh, end of data, but, you know, until the Taliban takeover, uh, not a lot of meetings took place, but actually the, uh, most of the meetings, you know, um, um, talking about um, the, the extension of the US presence. Uh, and then the troops withdrawal. I'll come to that point uh, in a minute. So here we collected data on, on all actors uh, involved in uh, inter-Afghan negotiation process. Um, and the figure shows that the number of peace process specific meetings and unique actors involvement over time, as you can see, parties were meeting for you know, more and more meetings and more and more involvement of various actors you know, uh, in those meetings. And based on our methodology, altogether, the parties met for 612 times. Um, um, and that included 77 dif different actors, you know, not only the Afghan um, side and the Taliban side, but also a lot of civil society actors and international actors. Actually, the meeting between Taliban and Afghan government, you know, it happened only 23 times out of 612. And the Taliban had 67 meetings with third party actors, including the United States. We also mapped, I don't know whether you can see uh, this particular uh, graph or not. We actually mapped out the network of all relevant actors uh, in this particular peace process. Um, and then uh, trying to understand who is meeting with whom here. And the circle here is based on, the size of the circle is based on um, um, the, the involvement of the frequency of involvement of um, in the particular um, actor in various um, uh, meetings. And the red circle here represents the Taliban side, the maroon color represents the Afghan side and the orange international actors and light blue, all the civil society actors. The key takeaway from this particular graph is you know, how diverse the peace process is in terms of various actors, um, both international and domestic. Um, and in a minute, I'll come about you know, how divergent the issues are in this particular negotiation process. So we analyzed um, uh, for the four different periods, you know, we talked earlier, we analyzed the content of the meetings you know, um, and found six specific issues um, discussed in, these meet in, in those meetings. So the women's issues, uh, issues related to human, right, human rights, the Afghan economy, the ceasefire, the prisoners release and troops withdrawal. In the fourth phase uh, or the, the uh, here, uh, after the Biden, Biden administration's decision to review the Doha agreement, the troops withdrawal was the most frequently discussed issue. And we all know that the Taliban did not want that. 
you know, they wanted the, uh, the US troops to leave uh, quickly. Um, that was followed by the Afghan economy, the human rights situation, and uh, ceasefire and women's rights. As the peace process, you know, uh, advanced, you, you can see that the women's rights were not getting a lot of attention, especially in the fourth phase of the negotiation process. Or am I doing in terms of time here? Okay. So we. We also uh, try to analyze uh, the involvement of various actors and what kind of specific issues that they are talking, you know, in when they are meeting with, with each other. And the Afghan government and Taliban mostly uh, discussed issues related to ceasefire, troops withdrawal, and prisoners release. And of all the meetings that the Taliban had in the entire negotiation process, you know, 612 distinct meetings, only one meeting mentioned women's rights or issues. Um, here. The Afghan civil society, uh, they represent 17% uh, of all meetings, and they were present in 44% of the meetings that mentioned women's issues or women's rights uh, in those meetings. So women's issues were, mis were discussed mostly in meetings between um, the international actors and civil society actors, between international actors meeting international actors on Afghan peace process related issues in meetings between Afghan government and international actors and Afghan government meeting with the civil society actors. There was no, you know, uh, uh, no mention of women's issue in meetings with the, with the Taliban except for one time. And while these all issues, you know, are very relevant, like uh, ceasefire, troops withdrawal, prisoners release, uh, women's uh, rights, human rights and Afghan economy, the negotiation process never got into the substantive issues that the that was specific to the demand of the Taliban side, and these demands were specific to the role of religion, the Afghan constitution, and the inclusive government. They wanted Ghani to resign and pave the way for the inclusive government, but of course, you know, we all know that Ghani did not do that. So there were a number of you know, weaknesses in the inter-Afghan negotiation process here. Uh, the first, I would say that um, the Doha, Doha negotiation was highly formal process. Um, um, you know, it was carried out um, by the team nominated by both sides, but, but the problem was that you know, there was no visible engagement of the Taliban and Afghan leadership at the highest level. It was you know, carried out by the, the team appointed by, by both sides. Uh, there was a asymmetric preferences among divergent actors. Uh, for example, the Afghan and Taliban, you know, as I said, you know, they were mostly talking about ceasefire, ceasefire monitoring and troops withdrawal. And the third parties and civil society actors, you know, they were talking about women's rights uh, and human rights issue in Afghanistan. So you can see, you know, the parties were not on the same page in terms of the issues that was relevant to the Afghan conflict. And the Afghan government lacked unified political front. Uh, as you can see in this particular, you know, network, I have a few uh, maroon color, you know, circles here. And the reason, you know, why is that because, you know, there were, you know, kind of um, um, uh, factions, you know, blocks, you know, wanting to uh, pursue different strategy in this particular negotiation process. Uh, so that means that you know the Afghan government did not have a consistent position uh, when they were negotiating with with the Taliban. The Taliban they remained secluded. Um, all the leaders were uh, in foreign countries, 
and they were beyond reach to the civil society actors. You know, this is very, um, very much important uh, in this negotiation. They were not available for uh, civil society actors. And the Afghan civil society actors, they had a very good working relationship with the third party actors in the United Nations, United you know, States, Norway, and other countries. But the thing you know, is that these third party actors never accompanied them when they were meeting with the Taliban. So they, they were not um, there uh, with the third party actors uh, in those meetings. And the final point here, the regional actors, they had limited space and influence, uh, but we all know that the Afghan conflict you know, has regional dynamics in terms of peace and security. Um, what's going on in Afghanistan matters to countries like Iran, Pakistan, India, Kazakhstan, um, Tajikistan, China, and so on. So coming back to uh, the issues related to women's rights, uh, recently I published a, uh, you know, a, a paper with a colleague from Peace Research Institute Oslo examining how the conflict termination relates to women's rights development in the post-conflict um, um, phase. And we found that in general, rebel victories are counterproductive to women's rights in the post-termination um, 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 phase. And in, in that particular research, we found that the, it is the peace agreement, comprehensive peace agreement and implementation of comprehensive peace agreement that contributes to the improvement in women's rights. So, but the thing in Afghanistan is obviously, you know, it is a rebel victory, Taliban, you know, won um, uh, the war. Uh, and also the important thing is that, you know, in Afghanistan is that this is not the first time that the women in Afghanistan are demanding uh, for their rights. They had equal rights that was secured in the 1977 constitution um, um, uh, in Afghanistan. Their rights, you know, the rights in this uh, was significantly curtailed when the Taliban came to power in 1996 and the Afghan, you know, women, they got their political and economic rights back uh, in 2001, or, you know, you can say, you know, it was um, uh, institutionalized through the 2004 constitution. Uh, it, it guarantees equal rights. It guarantees 25% seat for women in the lower, um, lower house and 17% seat uh, in the upper house. So the findings that we have you know, from our research and Taliban's own history in Afghanistan tells that the, the, the current situation in Afghanistan is not very suitable um, um, or, or, or it poses a significant threat to women's rights uh, uh, in Afghanistan. So after the victory last August, um, Taliban, um, they tried to change the narratives, their image, um, um, or perception, you know, among Afghan civilians and international community, that saying that you know that they are very um, um, they are very inclusive. This time is going to be very different, and that's what you know uh, I perceived in the first press conference that they had after their victory. They promised women's rights. You know, they promised inclusive government with women's representation. Uh, but they did. You know, we know that. You know, up to now they did everything opposite to that. Uh, the only, you know, uh, they formed only a male transitional government. There is no representation of women in the Afghan um, government as of now. The Afghan girls, you know, they are not able to return to school. Um, the Afghan, you know, women, uh, the, the working women, they are not able to return to their work. Um, 
And uh, there was a recent statement from the UNICEF suggesting that the child marriage is on the rise uh, in Afghanistan, especially after the Taliban, Taliban victory. So the only way, so I mean, the, the question for us, you know, is then, uh, is peace process relevant for Afghanistan um, uh, in the context of the Taliban victory here? And I would say, you know, it is also relevant to um, the question of uh, women's uh, rights in, in Afghanistan. And as I said, the only way forward for women's rights in context of armed conflict uh, is, you know, uh, only after the comprehensive peace agreement and implementation of comprehensive peace agreement, there was a significant increase in uh, in women's uh, women's rights. But the thing in Afghanistan, very strangely, you can see, you know, six different instances of rebel victories. You know, there was a rebel victory in 1973. Uh, and then there was a rebel victory in 1978 with the communists, you know, um, winning the power. Uh, 1992, there was Mujahideen overthrowing the communist government. 96, Taliban overthrew the uh, the 96, you know, government. There was 2001, uh, anti-Taliban, you know, coalition established a new government uh, with the support from the United States and other countries. And in 2001, recently there was, you know, Taliban taking over power. So it's the cycle of rebel victories in, in Afghanistan. And, you know, the only way to break this cycle of rebel victories is perhaps, you know, through inclusive negotiation process. You know, as I said, you know, when I was talking about the earlier negotiation in Afghanistan, you know, everything was very, you know, um, it was not inclusive, you know, all the key actors, you know, were not part of the negotiation process in the 1990s, even after uh, 2001. So if the Taliban are really serious about stability in Afghanistan, they have to negotiate with other political forces. That's what they promised, but they did not do that and establish inclusive government. It is very key for the stability and peace in Afghanistan. So there are, uh, you know, evidence, you know, from Congo, Democratic Republic of Congo and Cameroon uh, that when the rebels, you know, emerge victorious, the only way that uh, provided stability, you know, after the, uh, the rebel victory was the negotiation with the other groups who were not part of the victory. So there was, you know, inclusive peace process that stabilized the country uh, um, after, after, uh, after the war. So we have to understand that, but you know, the, the thing is that the Taliban is not a homogeneous group. You know, we have to understand that very clearly. Uh, there are various factions, um, um, you know, at the, even at the local level. And as of now, uh, there is, you know, Haqqani network, which is more militant and more uh, you know, opposed to the women's rights in Afghanistan are the dominant force uh, right now. The, uh, there are the mullah, Bardar's group, um, you know, played a significant role during the Doha negotiation process, but there are, and you know, they are in favor of the inclusive negotiation in, in Afghanistan, but they are not that forceful as of now. Uh, and uh, but we have to understand that you know the internal dynamics, you know, within Afghanistan, and then the external um, support that the Afghan the Afghan Taliban needs to continue with the the current situation. Um, it's very different, right? You know, so they need international support. They need support of local actors, you know, the, the, the key political actors uh, in Afghanistan to continue to, to stabilize the country and for their own legitimacy. So that gives me some hope that in the future, uh, it is just a matter of time. Maybe they are opening up uh, the negotiation process. 
but but we all have to wait and see uh, at this at this phase. With that, uh, I end my um, presentation here, and I I know I invite you for your intervention. I don't know how did I do in terms of time. Uh, right on time. I think that was great. Thanks. Uh, we can now move to the question and answer portion of our program. Please submit your questions via the chat function at the bottom of your viewing screen. Uh, feel free to turn on your video function, but please keep yourself muted. And while we're waiting for questions to come in, ICFRC wants to thank all of its members and donors for their support. We rely on the contributions from people in our community to carry out our free international programming. If you want to make a donation or join ICFRC, please go to icfrc.org. Thank you very much. Maybe I can begin uh, with a question while we're waiting for uh, others via chat. Um, can you talk at all about the uh, other regional neighbors uh, that you mentioned earlier and their reaction to the Taliban victory and, and uh, what role they might play? One of the puzzles you know, that was uh, not properly addressed uh, in the whole uh, intra-Afghan negotiation process is constructively engaging the regional uh, actor, uh, actors in this case, right? You know, the uh, Pakistan, India, Iran, um, uh, even you know, Tajikistan and China and Russia. Um, they obviously wanted to play a bigger role. Uh, um, um, and then, but for some reason, you know, it, it did not happen. Uh, when I had interaction with the key policy makers, you know, I always um, try to convince them the significance of the regional actors and how peace process was done elsewhere. Like for example, in Central American countries, there was a series of negotiation between uh, the Central American countries in early 1990s uh, that led to the you know, successful peace process in, um, in El Salvador, in Guatemala, uh, in Nicaragua, uh, and, and, and I tried, you know, to present that case. Look, you know, this is the way to do the case of an Afghanistan. Afghanistan conflict is not a conflict within Afghanistan in that it has regional dynamics. It did not happen. But, you know, after uh, I was actually going through who has the political uh, representation in Afghanistan as of today, and there are 12 countries um, um, who have a consulate service available in Afghanistan as of today. And it includes uh, Iran, Pakistan, China, Russia. So you see, you know, I mean, they they are leaning toward recognizing. I mean, many of these countries have not come forward recognizing Taliban uh, as a legitimate um, 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 state uh, or regime. But they are moving. They are moving closer to to that direction. Um, and 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 it looks like, you know, I mean, there is an interest in, especially you know, um, um, for Pakistan to work very closely with Afghanistan given what's going on in, in, in Pakistan itself. Great, thanks. Uh, we have a question uh, from a viewer. Are there any other peace agreements like Doha where the government in power was excluded from negotiations? Do you think future negotiations need to include groups like ISIS-K? This is a very tough question. And I mean, this is perhaps the only uh, peace agreement, you know, I mean, um, when I do uh, research about uh, civil wars, you know, 
uh, and we understand civil wars is between the government and then the, the challenger, the, you know, the armed groups. And this is perhaps the only peace agreement in my recollection, um, you know, examining peace agreements negotiated since 1945 up to now is the only peace agreement where the third party state directly negotiating with the, uh, uh, the non-state actor Taliban in this case. Uh, so, so it's a unique, uh, but in terms of whether it is relevant to include, you know, the ISIS uh, in the negotiation process, you know, or not, but the, the challenge with, uh, with ISIS is that um, it is not challenging the central authority of one particular state, it is challenging central authority of many states, right? So that's why, you know, it has uh, international dimensions and this is a unique case that I am not able to answer from my experience of working in peace processes. It's a very unique case. Um, um, it is not, you know, uh, um, one dyad, you know, it is like, you know, ISIS versus many other countries, including Mozambique, right? Now, I mean, it's far away, right? So how do you bring all these countries together um, and then negotiate with ISIS? It's, it's very challenging. Um, okay, great. Uh what can we as U.S. citizens do to continue to advocate and push for women's rights in Afghanistan? This is an interesting question and it, it came, you know, uh, during the negotiation process. Uh, at one phase, I felt like uh, all the international um, organizations working um, uh, in Afghanistan um, on issues related to uh, women's rights. Uh, I felt like these international organizations are not very sincere about the issues of women's rights in Afghanistan. They actually used Afghan women to promote, you know, something very different than what they actually want. What Afghan women actually wanted was, you know, uh, participation in the no negotiation process directly uh, so that they have more, you know, influence in the outcome of that negotiation. So what we can do, you know, you know, from the United States is to make that, you know, very clear that, you know, obviously we want to support, you know, um, the women's cause, but the way to do it actually giving them space, not taking their space in the negotiation process. And we have to be very careful about that. Okay, great. Um, so next question, it would seem that in the normal circumstance, the groups that are excluded from negotiations are the groups that are seen as bad actors. For example, the US just won't talk with certain parties, even if they are very influential. Can you say more about why in the case of Afghanistan, the Taliban were included and the government was not? So, it's a, so let me give you a brief you know, overview of uh, some of the, uh, the findings from uh, my other research. Like, you know, we examined the comprehensive peace agreement and to what extent those peace agreements were implemented and what is the impact of uh, the peace agreement implementation on the groups that were part of the process and on the groups that were not part of the process, right? So finding was that, you know, it decreases the conflict between uh, the groups that were part of the process, but when the implementation was significantly higher, uh, they, it also contributed to the decline of the groups you know, that were not part of the process. I would say it is trust building because now the government is building trust that they can be trusted to implement the commitments that they have in the agreement. So that other groups, they don't have incentive to continue the fight right? They don't have enough public support or civilian support to continue the fighting if the government is delivering on those commitments. So now 
translating that findings in context of you know Afghanistan, for example, here obviously the United States you know was being very strategic not to include Afghan government because they, they were thinking that you know they can coddle the Afghan government the way they want, right? You know, I mean they, they, they can bring uh, the Afghan government uh, uh, into the Doha negotiation process, not the Doha agreement, which was secluded, you know. Um, um, but the thing was that um, um, in Afghanistan, um, the Afghan government, again, is not the unified actor. There were a lot of factions and it was very difficult. Uh, they were in the position, you know, saying that we need the support from the United States to continue negotiation with the Taliban. We would like to like this to be, you know, between the Afghan government and the Taliban, but, but US interest was, uh, was not that because you know we were so much concerned about the withdrawal of the U.S. troops and the only fastest way to do that is to engage with the, with the Taliban, not with the Afghan government. Um, I think you know that is the only explanation that I can find um, um, here um, why we did that. Great. Could, could you consider what the outcomes uh, might have looked like uh, had President Trump won the 2020 presidential election in the U.S.? It's a very uh, tough question, uh, Bill. Um, um, but I think you know it. It would not be different. I think you know the uh, the troops withdrawal, um, U.S. troops withdrawal would have happened May thirty first. Uh, so the crisis that we uh, we are seeing in in Afghanistan, you know, would be three months earlier uh, than uh, than um, than you know what happened after August 15, um, 2021. Uh, I don't say you know uh, given. Um, the uh, the Trump administration's position on what's going on in Afghanistan, I don't see any different outcome. Um, um, so it's exactly the same um, uh, in terms of all the humanitarian disaster uh, in Afghanistan. Uh, one argument about why the US approach to Afghanistan failed is the lack of development of democratic institutions and economic development at the local level. Are there other comprehensive peace agreements that were more effective on this dimension? This is, you know, in our, this is, you know, we are doing, we are, we are monitoring as part of our mandate, you know, we are monitoring uh, the implementation of the, the, the Colombian peace agreement that was negotiated with FARC in 2016, you know, we have 30 uh, analysts on the ground uh, monitoring on a daily basis what's going on in terms of the implementation. So socioeconomic development aspect is the most challenging one to implement. Um, um, and uh, and you know it is not only the case of you know Afghanistan also in uh, in Nepal. I would say you know um, so I'm trying to understand you know what's going on in terms of uh, state building aspects of um, um, you know um, peace making or peace negotiation, right? So from academic point of view, I am trying to see the tension between the comparative politics and international politics. So. In, I mean, so the, the tension here is, uh, you know, uh, domestic political leaders, they are more interested uh, uh, to have a more control of domestic politics, which relates to what type of institution to build, you know, what, where to uh, deliver um, socioeconomic uh, development and where not to deliver. But international politics at, at the state level, right? And when international politics gets into the domestic politics, then that's really challenging. And you know you are basically trying to um, um, uh, influence uh, the um, 
the domestic politics, the, you know, and that is that is what's going on um, in all the countries. Where, you know, no matter whether the peace was ever the peace agreement was able to uh, maintain peace or not, in terms of you know institution building, in terms of economic development, where you see a lot of international uh, actors' involvement, um, those dimensions were probably not adequately um, um, uh, achieved. Um, so, so I mean, we we. We committed to do too much in Afghanistan, I would say, um, um, uh, and you know the outcome is is expected. So, so um, maybe as a final question, um, I'll uh, pose this, which is um, the United States uh, went to war in Afghanistan in response to the terrorist attack of 9/11. Um, do you think that now that the Taliban has returned to power that uh, it will again um, be uh, playing a role in, in promoting uh, international terrorism elsewhere? It's a, it's a, I mean, so even the US you know, national security uh, cannot answer that question, right? So, <laughs> so well, I have to, uh, I have to, you know, so it is all, it all depends on to what extent the Taliban are thinking about their legitimacy and survival uh, in Afghanistan, right? So they know the, um, the US firepower, they know, you know, how resolute the regional uh, countries are and how sensitive they are with issues about terrorism. So I think that, you know, I would like to give them in the kind of you know, benefit of doubt that they don't want to do that, you know, is one of the, uh, the, uh, the lessons in the Doha agreement is that they would not allow their, their members and you know, other groups or citizens uh, or individuals to use Afghan soil uh, against the United States and other countries or especially the US allies. So I don't see that, um, um, and that you know, um, the Taliban's are not committed, um, uh, but it is just like you know, whether the Taliban have the capacity uh, to deter uh, the growth of terrorism from Afghanistan and elsewhere. So it is the matter of that, and that's why you know it is important that um, the Taliban you know open up themselves, you know, have inclusive dialogue with other political forces, include regional countries, and find very inclusive. Uh, in a solution to the problems of you know terrorism and governance in, in Afghanistan. Well, thank you very much. Uh, we will conclude our program now. I want to give a big thank you to Dr. Joshi for his wonderful presentation and for sharing his expertise with, with us today. Um, I am honored to virtually present you with ICFRC's uh, highly coveted mug for coffee, tea, or the beverage of your choice. Uh, we will coordinate delivery details with you very soon. Uh, we are launching a new program series on December 16th, focusing on refugees and immigrants in Iowa. We will be sending you more information about these programs soon. Thank you everyone for joining us today. We are adjourned. Mm -hmm.